If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, or your phone, or whatever, and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and as you're turning there, I want to ask you how you are with instructions. Like, are you good at following directions? Uh, you know, there's the old gender stereotype that men don't listen, uh, read instruction manuals when they come. We don't ask for directions. Uh, I think that stereotype is probably true for the most of us. Um, but most of us, we desperately long for instructions. When we, when you start a job, you have a job description that says here is what you're expected to do. And when you're expected to do it, most of us like kind of feedback from our bosses about those things. When you're in, in, when you're married or maybe when you're beginning marriage, like it's good to have another couple pouring into you kind of instructing you what to do. And some of you will go, have gone through pre-marriage counseling and that's really happened. It kind of gives you tips for how to work through things in your marriage. Parenting, man, wouldn't it be great if your kid popped out with an instruction manual just for that, right? Just because just each kid is different, no kid is the same. All of, we need instructions sometimes for how to live and do life. And man, sometimes we really wish we had more of them. Instructions are helpful and necessary. And today, Jesus is going to come at us with some instructions for how to live while we wait for God. Life with God in the waiting for God. And we're going to see that this means yearning for God, being humble before God, and being dependent upon God. And so this That'll function as our outline this morning, too. So, Luke 18, we're going to read verses 1 to 17. It says, now, now he, that is Jesus, told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, give me justice against my adversary, For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told them, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, This one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
people were bringing infants to him so he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you'd help us, that you'd draw us closer to Jesus, that you'd point out the ways in which we've sinned and erred, and that we would run to you, our Lord and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke opens the text by telling us why Jesus told a parable. Love it. One of, the, one of the key features of the Gospel of Luke is that Luke often says, Jesus did this to do this. So, Jesus tells this parable, why? So that we would pray and not give up. In the context, the broader context of the passage that we're looking at today, to find it, you'd have to go back to chapter 17. In the Pharisees asking Jesus, Jesus, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus responds in that moment that the kingdom of God is not something that you're going to observable, that you're going to see, like look here or look there. Instead, he says that the kingdom of God is right in front of you. And this is where we kind of learn that the kingdom of God has started now. Jesus brought it in. The kingdom of God is already, it has started Jesus has started his kingdom. He's calling people to himself. You get life with God under his rule right now. But we also saw in that passage that the kingdom of God isn't just something that's already arrived, but something that is to arrive fully later. So when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God with him. And all of the sin will be wiped out of the world. All of the injustice will be wiped out of the world. And he will come with judgment. And in the middle of all that, he encouraged his people by telling them what to expect, to expect suffering, to expect that people will ignore God. And now here, Jesus is giving instructions for what do we do in the meantime? What kind of faith does, is God looking for? What does it look like to live with God while we wait for him to come again. And we see first is that Jesus wants us to yearn for God. Jesus wants us to yearn for God. Jesus tells a story about this judge. He says that he's an unjust judge. And the text says that he doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect people. He's, he's kind of an awful dude. He is in like the most elite social class. He is the 1%. Like if he lived today, he'd fly private or he'd be the guy that always gets on the airplane before everyone else, right? He doesn't bother with the affairs of everyone else. He doesn't live normal life like everyone else. He is an elite society. He doesn't even fear God. He doesn't respect people. He cares about him. He is number one in his book. He's so self-sufficient, and he's kind of a jerk. He is the opposite of what a just judge is. And in his courtroom, 
there is a widow. She shows up to court every week, every day, and keeps pleading with this judge for justice. Pleading with him. Now, when you think of a courtroom, you, you maybe you think of the Supreme Court, which is, you know, this big bench in this nice wood paneling and flags draping each side. Or, or maybe you picture like the courthouse. I don't know what the courthouse looks like downtown or, you know, but you picture kind of a stately room. You have your where the I don't know what you call them, the audience sits and you have like, you know, the table here with the, the plaintiff and the table here with the defendant and so forth and bailiffs and so on. That's a Western understanding of a courtroom. In this time, a courtroom would have been a pretty chaotic place with likely a bunch of people crowded into a room calling out to the judge to take their case. And the judge would sometimes line his own pockets by giving justice to the highest bidder. So people would come into a room, say, judge, take my case. And I don't know if they'd wave their cash or whatever it is around and the judge would take their case and also make themselves a little wealthy in the process. But here's a widow, and she keeps coming back over and over again. And implied in the text is that this widow has no money. And she keeps coming over and over, pleading over and over. And it says that the judge takes their case because she is wearing him out. So not only is she pleading, she must be really, really loud, like really, really pleading for the judge to take the case. And Jesus points out in verse seven, will not God grant justice to the elect who cry out to him day and night? Jesus says that we are supposed to be like the widow in this story pleading with God, coming before him over and over and over again, and to know that God will hear us. Because if the unjust judge will grant this widow, how much more will God grant justice to those who call out for him? We are to be people of persistent, faithful prayer. The Apostle Paul would echo this in Thessalonians and Romans. In Thessalonians, he says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In an aside, I love this verse, because some of you have asked the question, what does God want me to do? I have a verse for you. God, it literally says, this is what God's will for you is, to rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks in everything. That's hard. But you see here, constant prayer. And then Paul again in Romans says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. That's hard. Any of you have been in a situation where you feel afflicted. Maybe that's a disease. Maybe that's just an ailment of some sort. Maybe that's a situation at work. But rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. And then what? Be persistent in prayer. We are supposed to be people who are pounding at heaven's door over and over and over again to keep going to God with our hearts. This is what we're invited to. And we don't go to God as 
a widow to an unjust judge, we go to God as our Father in heaven. So we're supposed to, yearning means being persistent in prayer, and it also means longing for justice. Yearning means longing for justice. Because look at what we're supposed to pray for. Well, of course, we're supposed to bring all our cares before God. That's what the Bible says. Cast all of your cares before him. He cares for you. Jesus here is encouraging us to pray for justice. If you have your Bible open, look at it. Verse 3, a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice. Verse 5, the judge says, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice. Verse 7, Jesus says, will not God grant justice to his elect? In verse 8, I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Do you think God wants us to pray for justice? It's right there. Justice is what we're supposed to pray for. This widow needed justice. As a, as a woman at the time and as a widow at the time, she would have had low social standing. People could have taken advantage of her, could have extorted her, could have charged her more money for things. There's all sorts of ways society would have treated her unjustly. And she is an ad- adversary, the text says, and she needs Justice and this judge administers it. In Jesus earlier or in later in verse seventeen, I'm sorry, chapter seventeen, told his disciples about the judgment that is coming, and that he'll finally deal with sin. And friends, what Jesus is kind of pressing into us is that we are to be people who long for the coming of Jesus and pray to that end that pray for the justice of God to touch down in our lives, to pray for God to bring justice where there is oppression, to pray for God to set things right, for his kingdom to touch down in real life, in our lives individually, where we go, and also for them to touch down because he comes back. We're supposed to long for that. Later at the book, uh, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John would say, Come, Lord Jesus. We are to be people who long for the justice of God to come down. Jesus himself taught his disciples in Luke 11. He says, Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. And what does it mean? For the kingdom to come, it means for things to be set right again. We're to be people who yearn for God, who are persistent in prayer, who pray about everything, but who also pray that God would bring justice. If you, We don't even have time for this today, but if we open the book of Psalms over and over again, we would see David praying, God, would you bring justice to my enemies? God, would you, would you put this right? Would you, would you get rid of this wrong? And that is how we are supposed to pray. So where is there injustice in your life? What would it look like for the kingdom to touch down there? Where do you see injustices in the world around you? What would it look like to pray that God would bring his justice down? We are to be people who plead with God for justice. If we experience suffering, we're to pray for God to come down and make it right. We want the goodness of the kingdom. So, we're supposed to 
be persistent in prayer. We're supposed to yearn for justice, and we're supposed to finally trusting in his goodness. Trust in his goodness. The widow came before the unjust judge. He gave her justice. How much more will your heavenly father hear and listen? He is good and just. And here's the promise, friends, that one day God will answer your prayers. That is a promise. He will one day answer that prayer. He will not delay. His timing will be perfect. He knows what he is doing. And in the meantime, we are supposed to trust them. And notice how Jesus talks about us. He says, how much more will, will God hear his elect? Like the people he has chosen, his own people, the people that belong to him, God will hear you. He has not forgotten you. He has not rejected your prayers. The psalmist would say that God, God gathers our tears as if they were in a bottle. He, is, he knows all of them. And he's forgotten none of them. And one day he will put things right. So how do we live as we wait for God? We yearn for him. We yearn for his kingdom in our lives, for his kingdom in this world. We persist for persist in prayer and we trust that he's good and that he knows what he's doing. Jesus wants us to do this. So we keep praying and don't give up. Don't give up. But to do life with God, we also need some humility before God. And Jesus tells a second story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Both of them go up to the temple to pray. Now, the Pharisee, he looks like he belongs. It's the temple. It's church. He's got his best church clothes on. He looks like he belongs. He knows all of like the lingo for church. He knows the right prayers to pray. He's got the Torah memorized. He knows lots of the Old Testament. He looks like he's belongs in church. It's no surprise that he's in church. It's kind of where you ex- expect a Pharisee to be. He's at the temple. He's praying. Of course he is. And then Jesus lets, in on, lets us in on his prayer. In verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. Scholars point out several things about this Pharisee. First, is they say he really wants to stand out. Look at him. Like, if you look at his prayer, he goes further than the law requires. He gives a tenth of every single one of his possessions, and he thinks that it earns him something, and he thinks that that makes him better than other people. He's self-absorbed. He's really focused on how good he is. Look at me. I'm dressed to the nines. I'm in my church clothes. I'm at church. I give a tenth of everything. I look at all that I do. I'm not greedy. I'm not, I'm not an adulterer. I'm definitely not like that tax collector. So not only is he self-absorbed, he finds security in comparing himself to other people. And maybe you've done this before. Ah, I know what I do is bad, but at least I'm not like fill in the blank. Well, the moment you start doing that, the moment you are more like the Pharisee than you are like a follower of Jesus. Notice, this guy also has a bad attitude. 
See, holiness, closeness to God, and condescension, where you put other people below you, are not congruent. It doesn't work that way. And when, and when you do that, when you think you're spiritually mature and look down on other people, kind of shows that you're really immature, that you don't really get God. And with that, he judges others. The Pharisee seems to see everyone else's sin but his own. Not greedy, not like that. And I'm not like that tax collector. And his lack of self-awareness limits his own experience of God. And then, the camera pans when we see a tax collector. Now, if you go up to temple and you see a tax collector there, you're like, what in the world is he doing here? Because tax collectors, as we've discussed before, they're the lowest of the low in their view. Like, if you would read some literature, there seems to be it's even hard for tax collectors to atone for their sins according to the customs at the time. They've largely turned their backs on their people, often Jewish people who became tax collectors who end up working for Rome. So they're basically just taking money from their own people. But here he is in verse 13. And he is so self-aware. He is so aware of his own sin and his own fallenness and his own brokenness that the text says that he's standing far away. It's like, I'm not even really worthy to be here. And he's beating his chest, which is like something that men in the culture did not do. And he's saying, God, have mercy on me. He is at the end of himself. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Scholars say he sees himself clearly. He knows who he is. He knows he's unworthy to be there at all. He knows that if there's ever a chance he's saved, it's because God is merciful and he appeals to that. He's broken and low. He's taken a humble position. Notice the Pharisee, he's not in this humility and it's just an aside like sometimes we don't always feel the way we should right sometimes we feel a bit more proud than we should be but but sometimes we need to let our bodies coach us into how we should be feeling so that's why you'll sometimes see people kneel when they pray i'm going to get low before god i'm feeling maybe a bit more puffed up than i should be but i'm going to put myself low because that is what's right and so this, this tax collector, he is striking his chest. His, he won't even look up because dare he look up to God. And he says, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. So if you, if you don't feel the way you should, or you want to feel more deeply the way you should, put your body in a position of humility. When you pray, get on your knees. Lay face down on the floor or just open your hands. Put yourself in a place to receive. And finally, this guy, he makes no judgments on everyone else. Look, he's not looking at around. He's like, I'm a tax collector, but at least I'm not like that prostitute over there. He's just like, God, I'm unworthy. He's not looking at the Pharisee and thinking what a hypocrite the Pharisee is. He just sees himself. And Jesus says this about them. I tell you, 
This one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To live life with God while we wait for him means to have humility before God, to get low, to see ourselves and assess ourselves clearly for who we are as sinners. And Jesus says he told this parable so that people would not trust in their own righteousness. It's really easy to look at the things we do to think they earn us something towards God. But the good news of the gospel is that you can't earn anything to God, that God just lavishes his love on you and Jesus. The only thing you bring is Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus would pray, teach us, or forgive us our sins. The next line in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. We must be honest about who we are and ask for forgiveness from God. To get low before him, to remember that nothing that we have done earns his love. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. So friends, draw near to God. And the promise is he draws near to those who draw near to him. So as we wait for God, we yearn for him, we live humbly before him, and finally we live dependent upon him. Dependent upon him. Passage this morning concludes with a fitting passage of children being brought to Jesus. Now, you could understand why children would be brought to Jesus. He is Jesus after all, but it's also a high infant mortality rate in this time. So they're just longing for the healing and preserving touch of Jesus. So you had these parents bringing them to him and the disciples, they're such killjoys. They're like, no, get children out of here. They're noisy. And Jesus corrects them. Says, no, no, no. Let them keep coming to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. And there is a lot we could say here. And this is kind of a hinge passage that, that fits in this week and fits in next week's passage that we'll see in a little bit. But I just want to say that what does it mean to welcome the kingdom like a little child? It means to be dependent upon God and no one else. You can't trust your own righteousness, the own good things that you've done. You can't trust in your own possessions to bring you security. You can't trust in the opinions of culture around us. You can only be dependent upon the goodness of God to do what he said he'd do, and to bring justice how he said he will. This is an invitation to place all of our hope and confidence in him, to live lives where we recognize that everything comes from him, that he is sovereign over everything, to submit all your plans to him, to be dependent upon him, not just to save you, but to hold you and to finally bring you home. That is what God wants for you to be dependent on him. Dependency upon God is for the beginning of the Christian life. It's for the middle of the Christian life. And it's for the end of the Christian life. Look at a child. Can a child save himself? 
No. Can he nurture himself? Can he feed himself? Bring himself to hunger? Bring himself, like, feed himself? No. They need to be fed. Can they make their own plans? Do they pop out of the womb and be like, Mom and Dad, I want to be a physician when I grow up? And no. There's just so much that's just out of control. Do they define how we want to live? Mom, I prefer... Some of them do. They, they prefer one bedding over another. But, but they don't get to make any choices. They're just dependent upon parents to love them and nurture them to health. Well, Jesus says that to live life waiting for God is to be dependent upon him. That he will love and care and preserve and protect you until he comes again. Babies cry. They just let us know that they need something. And so we're called to cry, to cry out to God. Jesus, have mercy on me. To cry out to God with the things going on in our lives. The troubled marriage. Struggling work. The insecurities we have. The sin. And say, God, I'm just dependent upon you. It's going to need to be you who saves me and brings me home. We live in a time when many people desert the faith, the faith because the brokenness in the world around us and the brokenness within the broader church have experienced much pain, and maybe you have experienced much pain. Things that have happened to you, difficulty of life. What I want you to see here in this passage is that God sees you. He sees you. He acknowledges here that there's going to be real brokenness in the world you're facing. And he is encouraging you by being persistent in prayer, by yearning for him, by calling out for justice, by trusting him, by being low before him and dependent upon him. He he is calling you to just trust that he is in control, that he will make it all right again. So how do we live? Life with God as we wait for him. We live at yearning for God. We have humility before God. And we have dependency on God. In a little bit, we're going to take communion. And uh, communion is a meal for those who are Christians. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you not to take communion this morning. And I thought, as I was thinking about, man, what's the first step for us to apply this to our hearts? And I kept coming back to the Lord's Prayer because Luke kind of weaves it in here. So after I um, talk about the elements, I'm going to pray, and we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together at the end as a way of of putting ourselves low before God, as a way of being dependent upon God, as a way of asking for God's kingdom to come. And then you can come forward as you're ready. that makes sense? Okay. So Jesus gives us this sacred meal, this what we call communion or the Lord's table. It's a time for us to remember our dependency on God, to remember that we really bring nothing to the table at all because Christ died and he rose and is coming again. It's a time for us to remember that, man, he died for me, so he will surely bring me home. It's a time for us to remember that God put our sins on Jesus and put sin to death in Jesus and invites us to life with Jesus now. And it's a time for us to remember that God 
will put things right again. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he said, Drink this, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray together.